All right, so today we're continuing our uh, Prologue to Messiah series. We are talking today about Genesis. Um, and this series, by the way, comes from uh, really an organization, well, the highlights of this series comes from an organization called Jews for Jesus, which is a uh, messianic evangelical outreach out of New York City. And one of the reasons I mention that is because I spent a week working with them when I was in high school. Uh, apparently, Becca did not know this. Like, what? Um, and so one of the things that they do is they work with, uh, with the Jews in the area, and, and as you probably know, New York has a fairly substantial Jewish population. Uh, and they work with the Jews in the area to argue, just as Paul did, that Christ is in fact the Jewish Messiah. Uh, and so one of the things that they have put together, and that we're kind of, we're, we're totally and shamelessly stealing from their website, but they would be totally okay with it, so it's fine, uh, are touch points in the Old Testament that lead us into that conversation of, okay, who, who Jesus really is and how Jesus is reflected in the Old Testament as well as the New. Uh, so true to my history of uh, speaking in this particular church, I am talking about Genesis because it always seems like I am talking about Genesis. I am in Genesis again, once again. So here I am. I looked at Becca and I said, is it, is it true that I'm always talking about Genesis? And she says, yes, but it's okay because I enjoy hearing you talk about Genesis. So the rest of you can now go to sleep, but Becca will appreciate. Um, now the good news for everyone else is that usually I talk about the third chapter of Genesis, and today I'm not. I'm talking about the first and second chapters of Genesis because Chris has already talked about the fall. That's how we opened this particular series. I'm expanding my horizons. I'm still not past, like, the fourth book of Genesis. That's all I've ever read, right? I started with one. I got through, like, the fifth chapter, and I said, that's it. I'm done. That's all the theology I need. Thank you. We can edit this out, too, right? All right. Genesis 1 and 2. So Genesis, as you're probably aware, uh, means origin or process of formation. It comes from the Greek. At least our word Genesis comes from the Greek. In the Hebrew... Uh, the word, which I can't pronounce, <clears throat> actually means in beginning or in the beginning of. So if you come from a Hebrew background, you know Genesis under a different word. But since none of you come from a Hebrew background and I can't pronounce the Hebrew, we're going to stick with Genesis. The first two books of Genesis are separate from the remaining books of Genesis because they are the only text relating to the pre-fall condition of man. So, one of the things that happens when you are asking a data guy, a data analyst, which is what I do, um, among other things in my job, you get graphs, all right? So I ran some quick numbers. Uh, and in terms of chapters in the Bible, the Genesis account, the creation account, where we're staying today, takes over two chapters of the Bible. The remaining of the Old Testament has 927 chapters, and the New Testament has 260 uh, if you work that in, out into percent, this, this little sliver right here that Microsoft couldn't actually color because it's so small, um, is, this is, this is where, this is our wheelhouse today, this is our box today, 0.2% of the Bible is what we're talking about today, uh, and then most of the rest of the Bible is actually the Old Testament. Now, the reason that I mention that and the reason that that's important uh, is because almost all of the Bible talks about the recreation or the restoration of what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. So we have 2% of the Bible that is actually truly foundational 
to the rest of the Bible, and I hope to get that message across. One of the things that I hope you get out of this is an understanding of how important this 0.2% is um, to everything else that's happening and to what God, what God is doing now as well as throughout biblical history. So we're going to talk about some biblical themes and things of that uh, as well. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 actually breaks creation down into two accounts. You have first in Genesis 1 what they call the priestly account, quote-unquote, of Genesis. This is the more theological of the two. It was probably written second, most scholars actually say. This is probably actually the newer of the two, and it was put in the front for theological reasons. And then chapter 2 expands on the accounts of the creation of mankind in particular. And so you, you draw a different theological truths out of it. We're going to do a quick review. Um, I decided I I didn't want to read the entire thing because I am lazy. Um, So this is a summation account. Chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the sky and the earth. The earth was empty and had no form. Darkness covered the ocean and God's spirit was moving over the water. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Then God said, let there be something to divide the water into two. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered together so the dry land will appear. Then God said, let the earth produce plants. Then God said, let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from the night. Then God said, let the water be filled with living things and let birds fly in the air above the earth. Then God said, let the earth be filled with animals, each producing more of its own kind. Let there be tame animals and small crawling animals and wild animals and let each produce more of its kind. Then God said... Let us make human beings in our image and likeness. So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. God looked at everything he'd made, and it was very good. Evening passed, and morning came. This was the sixth day. And then in chapter 2, From the ground, God formed every wild animal and every bird in the sky, and he brought them to the man so the man could name them. Whatever the man called each living thing, that became its name. The man gave names to all the tame animals, to the birds in the sky, and to all the wild animals as well. But Adam did not find a helper that was suitable for him. All right, so a couple things that are happening here. Um, One of the, from a, so from a Hebrew literary standpoint, one of the theological things that is happening here is you see a system, uh, a hierarchy of authority. When you name something in Hebrew culture, you are claiming authority over it. So it's very important when God says, let there be light, and then he names, the, he names the light, right? He names the day and he names the darkness and names the night. One of the things that he is doing is he's claiming authority. So God is saying, I have authority over all of creation. He creates mankind in his image, and he gives man authority over the earth, right? So there's this kind of chain of events that happens. That turns out to be kind of important. Um, Regarding the relationship between Adam and Eve, this sort of harkens back to our God's Not Red series, Uh, I did want to highlight that in the original Hebrew, there is actually most, well, okay, so background. Um, When I was looking up the commentary for this, I looked up both Christian theological commentary and also I, I took a class in college. Uh, that was incredibly secular in nature with incredibly secular um, commentary by Hebrew experts on the Old Testament. Uh, They give you kind of a fascinating insight into, if you are completely a secular person, how would you, what conclusions would you draw from studying the original Hebrew? And almost everybody agrees. 
uh, that if you look at the original text in Hebrew, there is not a sense of authority of Adam over Eve. The original Hebrew of what's happening here seems to be that God creates humankind, and one of the words that we translate Adam is actually humankind. God creates humankind, and he creates them male and female. So there's a separation between male and female, but that they're created sort of at the same level of creation. So I looked up some other commentary, uh, and I thought I would just, just read some to you. This is all Christian commentary. It's from a guy named Ellicott. Ellicott's commentary for English readers, which is good because we're all English readers. This is now regarding when um, Adam says, now this is someone who, did I read that? Did I miss that, guys? Uh, did I read this? I did not read this. I totally jumped over this. Well, this is not making any sense then. Let's go back here. Uh, this is Genesis 2, chapter 21. So the Lord God calls the man to sleep very deeply, and while he was asleep, God removed one of the man's ribs. Then God closed up the man's skin at the place where he took out the rib. The Lord God used the rib from the man to make a woman, and then he brought the woman to the man. And the man said, now, this is someone whose bones come from my bones, whose body comes from my body. I will call her woman because she was taken out of man. Ellicott's commentary. This is now, in verse 23, literally this stroke or beat of the foot. Isn't that a great phrase? Beat of the foot in keeping time. It means, therefore, this time or colloquially at last. So it there's a, there's a sense of Adam has been searching for something, and he's found it at last, right? Adam had long studied the natural world, and while with their confidence as yet unmarred by human cruelty, they came to, they came to his call, grew tame, and joined his company, he found none that answered to his wants and replied to him with articulate speech. At last, on waking from this trance, he found one standing by him in whom he recognized a second self, and he welcomed her joyfully and exclaimed, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is, she is man's counterpart, not merely in feeling and in sense, but his flesh in his solid qualities. In several of the somatic dialects, bone is used for self. Uh, thus... Yeah, we'll skip the rest. That's fine. You guys get the point. Um, she shall be called woman, Aisha, in, in the Hebrew, because she was taken out of man. Aish. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's I-S-H-A-A for woman and I-S-H for man. Adam, who knew that he was a man, Aish, uh, called the woman a female version of himself. The words of our version, man and woman, perhaps womb, man, represent with sufficient accuracy the relation of the words in the original. Benson has this to say, this is now bone of my bone. Probably it was revealed to Adam in a vision when he was asleep that this lovely creature now presented to him was a piece of himself and was to be his companion and the wife of his covenant. In token of his acceptance of her, he gave her a name, not peculiar to her, but common to her sex. She shall be called woman, or she, man, differing from man in sex only, not in nature, made of man, and joined to man. All this is to say that we can still talk about, particularly in the, in the New Testament context, we can still talk about 
concepts of leadership, and we can still talk about concepts of headship, um, and we can still talk about the relationship between man and woman, but in the original Hebrew, and I'm not going to go into all that because that, that requires some systematic theology of the New Testament that I was not called upon to do right now, and I'm not qualified uh, to make those statements. However, in the original Hebrew, there is absolutely no sense of man being above in any sub- substantive way woman. And I know that's something we kind of, we, we've kind of harped on a little bit in this church from time to time, all right? Uh, but it bears repeating because it's something really, really important foundationally to our overall theology, okay? So things we learn from, we can skip over here as well, things that we learn from the creation account. Now, I am speaking theologically. We'll get into apologetics a little bit later, uh, but for the current time, I'm just speaking theologically. So theologically speaking, from a studying of God standpoint, what can we learn about God and about creation from the Genesis account. Number one, God is creationary. What I mean by that is that he calls a new reality into existence. In the beginning, there's what? Something, surely. In the beginning, there must be God, right? And God's just hanging out, doing whatever God does in the beginning. We don't really know. It's never explained to us in Scripture. He's just doing his God thing. And he's hanging out, and he's doing his God thing, and his God thing says, let there be light. And what happens? There's light, right? There's an aspect of the creationary to God's word. This is incredibly important to the rest of Christian theology, right? So the remaining 99.8% of the Bible right, is all talking about the recreation of God, now, or, or the recreation of, of earth, the redemption of creation. If God is not creationary, God is also not re-creationary. If God doesn't have the authority to create, he also does not have the authority, by extension, to redeem. And it's really important that he maintains, remember, when he creates, he names, right? He claims authority over all of creation, and he never gives that away. He gives authority over the earth to mankind, those who are made in his image, right? Which ultimately results in him having to come in as a human and reclaim that authority, redeem that authority. He does that later, right? But before he does that, he never once gives away authority over creation. So he has then the authority to redeem that which has fallen away from himself. If he does not have that authority, then this whole thing is bunk. And we can all just go home right now, right? So this is a very foundational belief, that God is creationary. We see creation throughout Genesis, and we see God's creation, right? God creates through speaking. He also um, creates through doing. You see him stooping, right, into the, into the dirt, and he creates mankind out of the dirt, which is a strange thing, right? The land, the produce of the land that we are... We are nothing at the end of the day but dust. There's some theological stuff going on there, too. Uh, But we also see the land, the earth, produce. It creates. The earth produces plants, each of its own kind. Animals produce. They create, each after their own kind. Humankind produces. It creates after its own kind. Right? This is all the imprint of God's creation. What God is saying is that I am a God, among other things, who creates. 
I am creating out of my own image because that's what artists do. He's expressing himself. People think that God is, God is not an artist. God is an artist. God appreciates artists. I cringe when I say that because I lived with an artist when I was in college. And artists, they're weird. I don't know if we have any artists here. They're just weird, weird people. Savannah's like, yeah. All right. God loves you, Savannah. Representing the creation of God. The creation is wild, right? Jeremy, we were talking a little about this in the men's retreat, right? Wild at heart. God is wild at heart, right? God creates a, a creation that is both ordered and also not ordered, right? Have you ever watched a squirrel? <laughs> sit down some, seriously, sit down sometime and watch a squirrel, right? And if you watch a squirrel, you don't get any sense at all that here is a being that has his life in order. You know, this squirrel, he's going around, he's all around. Like, how are you surviving? You know, we got our day planners out. We got our, I got Outlook. If you're not in my Outlook calendar, you just don't exist. <laughs> Tell people at work, okay, can you put that in an email? Because if you don't put it in an email, you're never going to get that report. It's never going to happen. And they all laugh because they're all the same way, right? But didn't show up in the syllabus. Doesn't exist. What homework, right? That's how we live, right? And then we watch the squirrel, and we get absolutely no sense at all that the squirrel has any comprehension of how he's going to make it past the next 10 minutes, you know. Flitting around. Burying his nuts and then forgetting where he buried them. God's wild, right? But there's order in this. Uh, going back to theology, we see a creationary and restor restorative God throughout the New Testament. That's what healings are about, right? What's Jesus doing when he heals? He's restoring, to a degree, the intention of the image of God. Now, he's not restoring completely or permanently. That comes later, right? He's foreshadowing that. But that's what he's doing. He's restoring something in mankind. That's physical healing. That's emotional healing. That's spiritual healing, right? This is all creationary power. And it's a foreshadow. It's, oddly, it's a post-shadow of creation and a foreshadow of recreation, right? We go, into, we, we go into Revelation and we see, oh, new heaven, new earth, right? God is working this long-term creationary process that is recreationary from his original creation. Say that five times fast. Feeding the 5,000, or however many it actually was, right? We can... We go down the rabbit trail. Well, how many people was it said? Point is, it's a large crowd. And Jesus has two fish and a loaf of bread. And he feeds this large crowd. Well, if that isn't creationary, I don't know what is, right? He keeps, keeps breaking it up, and they're filling the baskets, and they have 12 baskets left over, 12 being a number of completion. Don't want to get into, into Jewish numerology, okay? It's also 12 tribes of Israel. There's significance to that. How many baskets do you have left over? We have 12. Oh, 12. You're the Messiah, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm the Messiah. Right? Casting out of demons. Again, creationary power. 
Jesus is restoring something in this person in front of him. This is all very important, right? Now, one of the reasons, and I think it's really interesting that, so when I was a kid, uh, I missed all this. Um, it's interesting that throughout the, throughout the New Testament, sort of post-gospel, we don't actually see much argumentation that, Jesus, that Christ is the Messiah. Which is really interesting, right? We get we get all of this we this bibliography of all of these people going around, and we get the teachings of Paul, but we don't actually get much argumentation. And the reason for that is that it's self-evident. If you're Jewish and you see Christ heal, bring about this creationary power, what he's saying without saying is, look. See this creationary thing that is happening. See the authority that I have over creation. Who has that authority? God. And only God. And the disciples recognize this. So did the Pharisees. <laughs> That's one of the things that got raised in trouble with them. Because he's claiming to be God. And he's claiming to be God in everything that he does. I have authority over your health. I have authority over what's happening with this, these 5,000 people who need food. I have authority over the demons. I have authority over life itself, right? He shows up and he calls Lazarus, Lazarus, right, back from the dead. And the timing on that story is super critical because in, in Jewish sort of mythology at the time, you're dead for three days, and then you're really, really dead. Sort of like the Princess Bride, where, you know, like, oh, I've seen worse. No, he's only mostly dead. But by waiting, what Jesus is saying is, okay, we're making, this guy, this guy is dead, okay? He's not just dead. He didn't just die. He's dead. Soul's gone. Everything's gone. It's done. It's over. It's finished. And Jesus comes in and simply says, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Lazarus comes out. This is sending a message. And people recognize, oh my gosh, he really is the Messiah. And at first they welcome him joyfully. Right? And then for people like me, for the Doubting Thomas types, yep, that's me. Um, Jesus is kind enough to actually say it. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. He's speaking to Martha. So we see a creationary and restor restorative vision for the church as well. right? The work of the modern church, as well as the apostles before us, works on multiple levels. One is practical. We try to meet the needs of the immediate needs of those to whom we minister. Right? The Cleveland Browns need a quarterback, so we'll provide a quarterback to the Cleveland Browns. The church is also to be restorative spiritually. This is supposed to be a place where people can come and receive God's healing spiritually. And sometimes the work of the church is straight up miraculous. We'll get into that soon. Our work in turn is a mere measure of the restorative work that God does for all creation. There's these archetypes in Scripture. Of how God is creation, how, how God is creating, and how God is recreating, and bringing back to Himself and restoring. Other things we see, theologically, aspects of creationary intent. What does God mean when He's creating? There's a couple things that we can we can glean. So observations in no particular order. One, 
There is an order in creation. There is a proper place for each thing. The light is separate from the dark. The day is separate from the night. The air is separate from the water. The land is separate from the sea. The animals and plants are separated into like kinds. They're separated from each other, and then they're separated into like kinds. Male is separate from female, and yet all of these things are equal parts in their place to the whole. Theologically speaking, one of the messages I think God is sending is, look, I, I am a God of order, but that has to do with holiness. The concept of holiness is that there are things that are separate to God. The concept of separation. This is why it was a big deal when, when Samson, you know, he of the hair, right? Um, he is separated for God. He is set apart for God. And yet he does all of this crazy stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with his calling as someone who is separate from God. And if you can go back and you look at that story, you think, wow, this, this guy is really not a good Christ type. Like he's, if you want an example of how to live your life, like find someone better, man. <laughs> like, like at least go to David or Solomon. Ideally go to Christ. When I was a, a kid, the pastor in our church said, I want you all to write down on a piece of paper, you know, who in the Bible you'd like to be more like, most like. And, you know, he called out some, some names and how many, you know, raised hands. And, and they finally got to Jesus and nobody raised their hands because nobody, nobody had actually thought, oh, I should be more like Jesus. I want to be more like David or I want to be, be more like Solomon or I want to be more like M Moses, you know. I want to I have the, the obedience of Moses and the, the kingdom of, Sol you know, the kingdom of David and the wisdom of Solomon and bar is too low. We should be like Christ. In many ways, we'll never be like Christ, so it's okay. No pressure. It's all good. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, other things that we see happening, there's no sin in, cre in, in creationary intent, right? There's no separation from God. There's no missing the theological mark, which is what sin means. God walks with Adam. And by Adam, in this case, we mean God walks with humanity, mankind, in the garden, in the cool of the evening. This also has to do with God's authority. One of the commentaries that I read points out that kings create gardens. Kings create gardens so they have some place to walk in the cool of the evening. And you walk with the king in the garden in the cool of the evening at the king's pleasure. Right? So if you're in good with the king, you can show up in the garden. And then in chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel. They're no longer welcome in the garden. Not because God doesn't want them there. God's not an earthly king. He doesn't want to just go kill you. Okay. <laughs> you rebelled. You're, you're axed. Right? But because he can't have mankind in the garden until he has done the restorative power to bring the relationship back to himself, which he has the authority to do. Adam and Eve, they try to cover up the gap between themselves and God by making fig leaves. <laughs> Got to make some loincloths here. That'll do it! What's the spiritual importance? The spiritual importance is that they're trying to cover up their sin. They're trying to cover up 
the gap between themselves and God because they know that God is coming to walk in the garden, the cool of the evening, with them. So God begins his restorative work very quickly, right? He throws them out of the garden because he has to. And then he gives them clothes. The point of that is that God has the authority to cover the gap. God is saying, I have the authority to clothe you. You don't have the authority to cover the separation between you and me. But I do. I have the authority. I named you. I created you. And I will cover the gap. So here's some clothes. There's also no struggle against creation in the garden. This is not to say that there's not work. Right? We get the sense that Adam has been doing some stuff. He's naming the creatures, he's tending the garden, he's walking with God in the cool of the evening. He has a purpose. It's not like he's hanging out. We get this impression that, you know, he's just hanging out. Yeah, just hanging out, waiting for a wife, you know. <laughs> like every single guy in college. It's really bad theology, by the way. There aren't any college single guys here, so I can't. Sorry, Malone Rowe. <laughs> There's some really bad theology about that. <laughs> I'm just like Adam, just waiting around for my wife. That's not how it works at all. But there's no struggle against creation. What happens when, when they're out in the rest of creation, right? They're out of the garden. God says, well, you're going to struggle. Adam, you're going you're gonna to eat the fruits of your labor, but it's going to be hard work. And indeed, if you've ever done any farming, has anyone ever told you about wheat? Jeremy's like, yeah, I think I've heard that. Something, something about wheat. I think I've heard this sermon before. Uh, I mean, look, farming's really hard work, right? Imagine going out into a field. I'm kicking my wife out of there. She's tired of this. Flesh of my flesh is walking right out of the room. What are you going to do? You know, she finally came to her senses. Uh but imagine you're Adam, right? You've got to, in order to taste the fruits of your labor, right? You have to first clear the fields. So you've got to get all the trees out. You've got to get all the roots from all the trees out. You've got to get all the rocks out. Then you've got to prepare the ground itself. So you've got to turn it over. You've got to make sure it's aerated. Then you've got to plant the seed, which is not always the easiest thing to do, right? And then hopefully... With the Lord's blessing, you'll get some rain and the seed will grow. And now you got more work to do because now you got to go care for the seed. You got to make sure the seed is properly watered. You got to make sure the seed is properly fertilized. You got to make sure that you get the weeds out of the seed because the weeds will, as you know, because you've heard this sermon before, uh, choke out all of the wheat if you're not careful, right? Then you've got to do the work of the harvest. And so mankind says to himself, gee, this is a lot of work. A lot of labor. There's this ox over there. I have authority over that ox. Let me see. I'm going to hook the ox up to this, this plow. So I make myself a plow, and I get myself an ox, and I hook the ox. Well, now I'm fighting with the ox. Because the ox doesn't want to plow the field any more than you do. <laughs> and let me tell you something about tractors. 
tractors don't want to plow the field any more than I do either, all right? I used to joke with my dad when we were down there, we're pulling in the wheat harvest and the tractor's getting stuck and combine sunk up to its frame in mud, but hey, you know, it's almost as if God said this would be work. We don't toil with the ground anymore. Oh, we're too smart for that. We toil with the tractors that toil with the ground. Always breaking. Always something. You put up a cattle fence, bull busts through it. You plant the seed, the weed's coming. You finally get control of the weed, new weed's coming. Always something. But there's no struggle with creation in the garden, right? And most importantly, of course, there's intimacy with God in the garden. They're walking with cool of the evening. When the king comes to relax, who is he choosing to hang out with? Mankind. Pretty sweet gig. You can also see that Jesus himself is present in creation. This is from John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, the Word was with God, in the beginning. Through the Word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then we talk about John the Baptist for a while, so we jump to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we jump back to Genesis. In the beginning, God, Father, created sky and earth. The earth was empty and had no form. Darkness covered the ocean, and God's Spirit, we've run into him before, was moving over the water. Then God said, to use his words, Christ, let there be light. And there was light. I thought it was very interesting, actually, that then, I didn't even see this until this morning. But then when Jesus shows up, who does he declare, him, who does he declare himself to be? I am the light of the world. The first thing that's created, he's referencing back. I am the light of the world. We also get the sense of the triune God in that. And I've already talked about Trinity. We've already given that sermon. We already know we don't really understand it, so we're going to move on. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> don't you get it, man? Nothing else matters. Uh, okay, we can edit that out too, right? We're going to do a lot of editing. Like, ah, uh, let's... Let's make this guy sound not so cultish. That's a good idea. All right. So we can move on. So the elephant in the room. So we've dealt with theological. So now we're going to deal with the elephant. How literally do we take Genesis? I'm going to give you exactly no good answers. Jake will appreciate this because this brings out the mystic in me. Look, this is not a theological hill upon which to die, okay? But there are some observations that I think it's worth making. Uh, so I'm going to break this down in, sort of in, in two ways. First, the creation timeline, the word days in particular. And secondly, the creation process, which of course has to do with our, our conversations about divine intention versus evolution. Um, first, days. So after doing some fairly exhaustive research, uh, most, if not all, Hebrew scholars agree that the word day used here, in this context, almost certainly is a reference to a 24-hour period of time. Now, the word that's used can also be used in other contexts to mean an undescribed period of time. However, 
if that is the message that the author was trying to convey. He had other ways of saying it. And I'm not going to go into all the Hebrew, and I don't entirely understand. Just saying. Okay. Most Hebrew scholars agree that if God were trying, or if the author were trying to get the message across that this is some period, some period of time, probably you would have used different terminology than what he actually used. All right? Now, does that mean that we should apply a 24-hour day to God created in exactly 24 hours? Right? God did this in 24 hours. God did that in 24 hours. This is where some legitimate disagreement can take place. Okay? I err on the side that God is probably using a literary device to explain the creation process in a way that we can relate to it. We can relate to seven days. We can relate to a 24-hour period of time. There's something about that theologically that I think God is trying to convey. The people of Israel, who's this, who this is written to, understand, right? They experience a day. They understand the idea that we do something in its appropriate place and time, and then there is evening, the next day, right? And we do whatever else in its appropriate period of time, and then there's evening, and we have the next day. And we go through this seven times, and then we rest, um, that said, I don't know that at the end of the, end of the day, end of the day, so to speak, <laughs> at the end of the undefined period of time, in the evening, in the cool of the garden, when we're walking with God, eh, having been restored, that a literal 24-hour day doesn't necessarily actually work. Um, and Jake and I have talked about this. I suspect, personally, and this is, my, this is my pet mystic coming out, that when we are walking with God in the cool of the evening at the end of all time, we will probably go, oh, it works on both levels. Because that's kind of how God seems to work. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, don't, don't die on that theological hill. I'm just making some observations. Um, secondly, creation process, divine intention versus evolution. Is it God that creates? It's very important theologically that we understand that God is a God of creation, that he has creationary power. If God does not have creationary power, Jesus does not have recreationary power or redemptive power or restorative power, and we should all just go to Shonies. Do we have a Shonies here? No. Okay, you're all looking at me, Blaine. There's no Shonies. Okay, we'll go to Big Boy instead. They're the same thing. <laughs> Later. We'll go to Raisin Cane's. Is that better? <laughs> Going to eat us some beasts of the field. <laughs> Having said that it's very important theologically that God is a God of creation, the process that God uses to create Let me posit this to you. We don't know what we don't know. And we don't know what we don't know theologically, because theology is the study of God. And if we believe in the God of the Bible, that the God of the Bible is infinite. So we don't know everything that there is to know about God. Therefore, our theology is at best incomplete. And probably in areas straight up wrong. Right? Science. 
We don't know what we don't know. We know what we think we know. We know what we think we know based on the evidence that we have before us at the time, but we don't know what we don't know, right? The universe, according to many scientists right now, is in fact itself infinite. So if the universe is infinite, our knowledge of the universe is not infinite. So our science is at best incomplete. How you want to interpret to that, that to your life, I'm just going to leave to you. Ain't that great? Going to raise questions and not give you any answers. Welcome. No, 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 no. I'm the Pharisee. If anyone's the Pharisee in this room, all right? If anyone's going to pick up stones, it's going to be me. All right. Let's make that clear right now. Uh, the one thing that we can say for sure, for sure, Jeez. And as we go into closing, every time, every time I almost made it through an entire sermon without this thing falling off my ear. We do know, and I would posit this, that ultimately Genesis provides an idealization of the creator and the created relationship. That is the point, right? And we see this throughout the Bible. There's some archetypes here. There's some themes that we can look at of the creator-created relationship. We have creation, 0.2%. This is the idealized relationship, right, between God and man. Then we have the interest of sin and its consequences. God immediately begins the restoration process with Adam and Eve. And then we have stories of the relationary process as demonstrated by Christ types. We have Noah, we have Abraham, we have Moses others. Then we have a relationship with covenant and sacrifice, first to Abraham and then to the people of Israel, the people who are, quote, called by my name. And we have spiritual leadership through Christ types. We have the judges, we have the prophets, we have kings. Some are better Christ types than others. Then Christ shows up. He upends the apple cart. Because now we have a new covenant, right? So now we have relationship with God through Christ. And now it is the church, it is those in Christ who are those called by my name. And we have spiritual leadership through Christ types, through the church, through Christians, many Christs, those who are Christ-like. And some of us are better examples than others, right? Then ultimately we will have recreation, new heaven, new earth. So you see this theme throughout creation, right? That at the end of the day, what this is really about is a relationship between the creator and the created, right? And that is all that I have, unless anyone has any questions. Except Chris, you're not allowed to ask any questions. All right. Jake, I'll pray for us, and then you can do your thing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are, first and foremost, a God of a relationship who is willing to reach down out of your own authority and your own power and your own love to cover the gap for us. I thank you so much that you restore us to you. And I ask that you would continue in your restorative power. I ask that you would help us to allow you to continue your restorative power in our lives. I ask that you would help us to be the church to this community, to be the church to each other, Father, help us to be your light and your love to those around us. In Christ's name, amen.